You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. Well, stimulus still the only game in town, like an addict. Market participants just can't seem to break the habit. Pick and pay bottles it. Celsi borrows more time from bondholders. And Google does a little bit of evil, maybe a lot of evil. We'll find out. So with your view from the market, Rob Tywell, Portfolio Manager at Sassman Securities and Victor Von Riesch, Portfolio Manager at Citadel. Uh, kick us off, Rob, uh, another Awfully thin days trading. If you look at market turnover, 14.3 billion. The all share up marginally by 0.2% at 55,271 points. What stands out? Yeah, relatively less last today. I think in the mining, you saw a turnaround in the platinum stocks. We saw Northern's up 2.5, Implats 2.5, Amplats caught a bit as well. And then uh, Arm, African Rainbow uh, Minerals also up 2.6%. So we saw a turnaround in the, in the platinum. That was but really gave a turnaround to the, the, the resources. But banks, again, flat. Um, and then retailers caught a bit of a bid today. Again, you saw uh, that was a nice positive after pick and pays numbers. Uh, Tiger Brands is up 3.7. Clicks. Um, uh, Lipstar, 23 Clicks, 7%. AVR, 2.3%. So the retailers are all picking up and finishing positive on the day. Uh, Victor, is that on the back of those pick-and-pay numbers? Uh, it did reveal that uh, the impacts of, of COVID-19 and the various levels of lockdown uh, meant 2.8 billion rands worth of uh, lost turnover. Despite that, it still managed to grow top line at uh, a very healthy 2.6%. Uh, so it does seem to indicate that retailers, uh, there are essential services are, are bouncing back quicker than most. I think it's exactly that. Uh, we saw it with the SPA results as well. So I think investors are sort of looking through these results, uh, seeing business models that have been able to adapt uh, in COVID, uh, moving more to online, focusing on more profitable shops, uh, smaller format stores, uh, aggressively attacking the cost base. And I think um, it's sort of very reassuring to, uh, to, to investors that the, the retailers, and especially the food retailers, have been very resilient in what's, what's been a very tough six months. And, and Rob, what we have seen is uh, a huge push to grow the online side of the business. Uh, and it was always part of the strategy and every single results, uh, there's a slide or two dedicated to growing the share of market in, in e-commerce and online. But we're still talking very low single digit numbers. And then COVID-19 happens and all of a sudden, everyone is scrambling to get online. You saw ShopRite very successfully roll out its 60-60 offering, perhaps catching pick and pay a little bit flat footed. Uh, what do you make of the bottle deal? Um, yes, I think they needed it. I think they needed uh, uh, a quick move to to get uh, delivery done for themselves. Um, I think you know you, you you try to expand your own uh, logistics team, but sometimes it just moves too quickly. And I think they needed to do that tra- that, that, that transaction. So I think it's positive for them. Uh, I don't know how scalable it is. You know, when you buy a small business like that, uh, um, you know how 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 much more scale they can get and how quickly they can move it. But I think it was a a good move by them. And it's also. Uh, brings margin back to the business. 
That's certainly a question I'm going to be putting to CEO Richard Brasher shortly uh, when we talk about the results and his plans uh, for online and how he intends on scaling it. I've seen a lot of those uh, um, little delivery bikes uh, with the 6060 branding all over them. I haven't seen too many of the pick and pay versions. Maybe they're doing it unbranded, uh, but that would be strange. That would be a lost branding opportunity. So uh, um, lots to uh, get our teeth stuck into there. And then globally, Victor, the there's only one game in town at the moment, and it's still the stimulus roller coaster with Nancy Pelosi and Stephen Mnuchin set to slug it out today. The, the odd thing for me is that it it seems a fait accompli that we're going to have stimulus. So it's a question of when, not if. Why is the market so fixated on this? Um, I, I think uh, post-COVID, um, with the obviously the damage that it that it's done uh, in terms of employment, uh, the damage that it's done you know, to businesses, um, you know, investors taking the view that liquidity is is all important, and and with the Fed being able to, to provide stimulus and liquidity. Uh, both monetary and fiscally, um, that that's obviously become very important to help sort of markets through this this very difficult patch at the moment. But you're absolutely right. There seems to be a, a very close correlation between our risk assets perform and news flow uh, around stimulus. And at face value, that the two bills don't look very different. There are some some nuances, and and, the, and both parties seem to be converging. Uh, and I would therefore agree. That a stimulus uh, looks all but done. The question, I guess, now is just whether this happens before the election, with Nancy Pelosi giving a 48-hour deadline to the Republicans, which seem to be sort of holding it up in the Senate, uh, or whether this happens uh, after the elections. I, I, mm-hmm. I think, in the greater scheme of things, probably doesn't make that big a difference whether it happens now or after the elections. But obviously, a lot of politicking uh, uh, um, happening at the moment. Um, partisan politics at play so uh, politics unfortunately dominating headlines for now and it will uh, for the next two weeks at least as we run up to that election speaking of politics uh, there's a lot of politics at play in the antitrust um, suit against google as well it's been one of those bipartisan issues uh, rob uh, with both conservatives and democrats uh, in agreement that tech companies have become a little too large when you start talking about the ability to sway and swing elections when you ta- start talking about the ability to erode the foundations of the fourth estate uh, the way google ads and facebook ads have done you look at the way the australians have approached this and the way they regulated um a, a fund into supporting the media for example fascinating time to be talking about how you regulate tech when tech has been the runaway uh, success sector over the last uh, three to four years at least. Uh, what do you make of this this latest move? Is it a threat to that that bullish long-term narrative around uh, the fangs? Well, you know, in the past, when uh, any type of company got to about 40 to 46% of, mark, of, of the market share, there was always regulation around it, whether it was uh, big oil or uh, you know, other industries uh, over the last 100 years. Around 46% and you start to get regulation. So I think that was coming. The difficulty here is that they let these companies get that big as well. I mean, uh, you know, every single company that virtually gets listed gets bought out by Google or Facebook. Uh, you know, Instagram is not uh, Facebook's uh, uh, development. They bought that company. WhatsApp, they bought. So, you know, they allow them to get to the size. It's quite a difficult business, though, to regulate. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, how quickly they can regulate it. And if these 
court cases will just go on indefinitely for years and years and years, and it won't make too much difference to mm-hmm. these businesses. But it's going to be an interesting uh, uh, next few weeks when we see what happens to the Department of Justice. We've already had a foretaste of uh, how our competition authorities might approach this when new mergers come before it. There's a special door on the side and they say, come here, ma'am, come here, sir, and we'll, we'll talk to you if this is a tech merger. We saw it with the We Buy Cars uh, NUSPAS uh, potential uh, acquisition last year. That was prohibited and that wasn't uh, based on the, the market share that NUSPAS had at the time. NUSPAS was just looking to get into that market. So they're looking at the future impacts of competition as well. Very interesting Indeed. Coming back uh, to this issue around um, the, the lack of turnover, Victor, in the South African uh, market. I mean, it's very commonplace now to see turnover numbers of between 12, 13, 14, 15 billion odd when they were north of 20 uh, not too long ago. And the AFROX de- delisting as well. Uh, is this just another sign of uh, the death knell for, for local equity markets? Uh, are we just uh, being consigned to uh, a bit of a backwater market? Um, so, I, I mean, I think if you if you look at, at, at sort of the, the past decade, and I, I know Keith McLaughlin has done a bit of work on this, um, we've seen just in terms of the, the, the number of, of shares on the local market, uh, you know, a decrease of, of call it almost 2% um, year on year. We've seen some, some unbundlings, but uh, that doesn't really... Uh, create new companies in the true sense of of the word. I think there's been a number of reasons. Obviously, companies globally have stayed private longer. Uh, that's not really an issue in South Africa. It's more regulated issue as well as sovereign risk. Uh, and we've seen a lot of pressure in the, in the small and mid-cap space where liquidity is dried up. And, and it, it's not a recent sort of phenomenon. We've seen this at play for the past five or six years. Uh, and it really makes it very difficult for companies to stay listed I mean, in terms of, of owners, onerous regulation, whether you're a small cap or, or mega cap, you have the same onerous regulation that you have to comply with. Uh, companies don't get the ratings um, that they potentially deserve. And ironically, sometimes trade at a discount to some of these pro- uh, uh, unlisted peers. That makes it very difficult to raise capital. Uh, and there's very little prices, price discovery, uh, specifically in that, in, in that space of the market. Um, and I think that obviously leaves companies with little choice, but then to 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 delist, um, you know, as they as they look for other funding sources. Uh, obviously, also if you look at the top 40 as uh, index, uh, and, and you just disaggregate that by super sectors, we've seen that same pressure at play in, in the so-called SA Inc. stock. So unfortunately, uh, a lot of these delistings are. Um, companies that have fallen victim to to um, very pedestrian. Uh, GDP growth, um, and, and unfortunately, that trend looks set to continue. Although there's been a recent sort of uplifting in, in some of the share prices on greater price levels, but, but the bottom line is we need we need sustained GDP growth. Yeah. Uh, you know, to, uh, that that's really the only way. That's it, though. A lot of the private equity funds, many international private equity funds, coming in, seeing value, and perhaps seeing something that. Uh, institutional investors uh, are, are are not seeing at the moment. I want to move on to the other big story today, Steinoff, uh, and it, uh, it's a pid- piddling amount, 13.5 million in, in terms of a fine from the JAC here. Rob, uh, when you look at the uh, 
hundreds of billions of rands of shareholder value that have been destroyed uh, due to this accounting fraud. We don't even have to call it alleged accounting fraud. We still need to see the full PwC report. And you've got CEO Louis Dupreer saying in a statement that the group is pleased that the process has been concluded. Talk about misreading the mood of the room. Yes, I mean, it's surprising that the JZ can only levy a fine at that level. You would think that it would be related to the size of the company and and the loss uh, that the company made. So you should, it should have been cheered. I'm, I'm totally surprised that that's a maximum that they can that they can find a company that's lost 3.9 billion euros. Um, so I'm, I'm sure they pleased uh, Steinhoff that it's uh, that it's over because it was only 13 million rand. It's, uh, it's, a, it, it's a travesty. It, it really is. That is uh, in no way, shape or form justice whatsoever. And we still uh, see Marcus Eurster swooning around the Ferncliffe estate down in Hermanus. Let's move on to uh, the other um, shocking news of the day. <laughs> Perhaps not unsurprising because it comes from the SABC uh, asking Netflix viewers to pay TV license fees. Can you believe this, Victor? Uh, why on earth should uh, a business be paying uh, for its, uh, it, or, or, or a competitor be asking um, its competitors to pay for its services? It is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I think the short answer is it shouldn't. Um, uh, you know, the SABC doesn't look uh, like a viable entity. Um, if, if, if you think about the, the sort of offering, obviously COVID has, has materially a you know, the finances of the SABC, which is very reliant on, on advertising spend. Um, in terms of collections, we know we know the story there um, where they've, been, they've battled for years to, to collect on, on, on fees. But I think, um, you know, the, with the, the service offering broadening significantly and globally also in South Africa, I think um, and the users have rises with their feet. Um, media is consumed in different and new ways. And unfortunately, it will leave a lot of companies behind. I think that the SABC, in its current shape and form, is not really equipped to, to deal with that changing landscape, unfortunately. So <laughs> I think um, yeah, it's, it's interesting times there for the SABC. Oh, every business would love to have their competitors pay them, uh, but that's just not how competition works. You've got to stay relevant. You've got to invest and you've got to innovate. That's certainly uh, not words that are associated with our public broadcaster. Victor Von Reich, Portfolio Manager at Citadel, and Rob Tawell, Portfolio Manager at Sassfin Securities, with your view from the market.